before I lead us in our sermon, uh, let us pray. Gracious God, bless the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts, that they may be profitable to us and acceptable to you. Breathe your spirit into us and grant that we may hear what you would have us hear, and in hearing be led to walk in the way you want us to go. Amen. A number of years ago, a youth director in our old church told me a riddle. And after that, he then went off on vacation for a week-long camping trip without actually telling me the answer. Kind of drove me nuts. Uh, before he went on his trip, he also said to me that 80% of the grade schoolers who heard this riddle were able to figure it out. I think uh, deep down he really just wanted to rub salt into that wound as I struggled with that riddle. So here's the riddle. What is stronger than God, more evil than the devil, poor people have it, rich people don't need it, and if you eat it, you will die? Nobody? You're making me feel good. <laughs> I never got it either. But here is the answer. Nothing. What is stronger than God? Nothing. What is more evil than the devil? Nothing. Poor people, unfortunately, have it. Nothing. Rich people don't need anything. They, nothing. And if you eat nothing, you will surely die. Literally... The word parable means a riddle. They are stories that leave it to the listener to figure them out, to figure out the meaning. Jesus told more than 40 parables uh, during his ministry, and he only explained one of them to his disciples. So that left his disciples to figure out 39 parables. And then Jesus ascended into heaven and all the answers went with him. So here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're still pondering what Jesus must have meant when he told these stories. Today's story is undoubtedly one of the most famous parables, probably the most recognized parable in the Bible. So let's begin to unpack this story in order to figure out what, uh, what the riddle is, what the answer is, in order to understand God's call on us and what he wants us to do. This parable arises out of a discussion between Jesus and a Pharisee. Here is a religious lawyer, an expert in the Torah, and he is asking a question on the nature of the law. The stage is set by Luke with these words. Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Well, it's not the first time that Jesus was put to a test by a religious lawyer or a Pharisee. So here is the question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit life, eternal life? Now, at first glance, this seems like a pretty good question. I mean, 
it's a, it's a fair question. However, it's really a flawed question because what can anyone do to inherit anything? Inheritance, by its very nature, is a gift from one family, uh, family member or friend to another. If you're born into a family, you don't have to do anything to inherit anything. Inheritance is not a payment for service rendered, so why is this lawyer even asking the question? It's because the lawyer's real intention was to test Jesus. This question is a test. It's a trap. And so in typical fashion of rabbis, both today and back then certainly, Jesus answers the question with one of his own. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer recites an expanded version of a passage from a Jewish prayer known as the Shema. Uh, the Shema is a prayer that Jewish followers, both then and today, pray every morning and every evening throughout their entire lives. And it goes, Shema, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. When we traveled through, uh, in, in a trip through Israel, we were, we were actually required to learn this in Hebrew. But I have to tell you, this is a few years ago, and I'm not even going to try anymore. Jesus naturally said, good answer. Do this, and you will live. Jesus had said, in effect, if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, do both of these things, Every waking moment, every day for the rest of your life, you are good to go. And that is true. You are good to go. Loving God, that's one thing. I mean, we pray to God, we love God, but loving your neighbor, everyone, all the time, that's another thing. So the, the lawyer puts the brakes on it. He says, whoa, wait a minute. Who is my neighbor? Like any good lawyer, he's looking for a loophole. His question assumes that there are two categories of people. There are neighbors and there are non-neighbors. So the lawyer is expecting a list that would include Pharisees, Sadducees, Certainly synagogue and temple attending Jews, but not Gentiles, and absolutely, certainly not Samaritans, that lot. He, ass he assumes the answer would be, your neighbors are people like you. So what does Jesus do? He did something that I think probably drove his listeners nuts from time to time. He tells another story, another riddle, something that we're going to have to figure out. This story takes place on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. 
And before I go into the story, let me just paint a picture of this road. I've been on it. The, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is 27 kilometers long. Not too far. It drops from Jerusalem, which is 822 meters above sea level, to Jericho, which is 243 meters below sea level, practically the lowest place on the face of the earth. Only the Dead Sea is lower. Jericho's beside it. So that's a total of 1,065 meter drop. In other words, for every 1.5 kilometers that you walk, you're going to go downhill an entire football field. And you're going to do that for 27 kilometers. It's a bear of a walk. The, uh, the other thing that you need to understand is that this road back in Jesus' days was no more than a wadi. It was a dried up riverbed. It was a desert. It was hot. It was dusty. There was no water. There were lots of boulders and rocks, so there were lots of bandits and robbers that were lurking in the corners every single day. And they're still there to this day. When we did this road, we needed an escort. It was a bad road. In fact, it was such a dangerous road, they named it the Way of Blood. That was back in Jesus' day. So Jesus' second story is about a victim traveling on the way of blood who was robbed, beaten, stripped of his clothes, and left for dead. There is not a lot that we know about this man, but there is one thing that we do know for sure. He is a man in need. As Jesus tells his story, he shows us how there are two ways for us to respond to people who are in need. The first way is highlighted by the first two people who come upon our victim. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, this is the victim, he passed on the other side. The temple in Jesus' day was served by three classes of people. Priests, Levites, and laypeople. The priest evidently had been to the temple to serve and was on his way back down the mountain to Jericho where many of the priests used to live. They would go to Jerusalem they would spend two weeks on an assignment in the temple, and when they were done, they would then travel back down to Jericho because, as Amos had pointed out, I think three weeks ago, Jericho was a wonderful place. It was an oasis in the desert, and uh, it was abundance of fruit, and it was just a great place to go. So the, it was quite normal for the priests to move down, spend two weeks, come up, and work. Immediately, optimism arises amongst the listeners that day. This man is a priest. He's a holy man, a righteous man, a religious man. Surely he will be the first one to help. 
But the moment we, he saw him, he passed on the other side. So question, why? Well, the priest had a special problem. This man was unconscious and he was naked. Now, if this fellow, if this were a fellow Jew, especially a law-abiding Jew, the priest would have been obligated to help him. But this man was naked and unconscious, and there was no way of telling whether he was a Jew or a Gentile. Furthermore, the man was wounded and could have been dead, and if the priest had touched him, he would have become ceremonially defiled. And he would have had to have gone back to Jerusalem and undergone a week-long process to become cleansed. He would have been away from his family without explanation. He would have been quarantined from everyone else. So the priest passes on the other side of the road. Nowhere near this guy. And the hope of the people listening sinks. Following this, a Levite comes along. Now a Levite, he's royal blue blood. He belongs to the tribe of Levi. And you need to understand that there were the 12 tribes back in the day of Joseph. Now at this time, there's only three left. The rest have been annihilated by Sennacherib. And uh, to this day, there's only, you will not find people except for the Levites and the two other tribes. So this Levite, he belonged to the, the, the uh, tribe that were the assistant priests. In fact, he was probably a, an assistant priest to this priest who has just gone by on the other side. As I said, when these guys traveled down to Jericho, they went as a group. Nobody went by themselves. It was crazy. So there's a good chance that he may have been this guy's assistant. We are told, we, we are, and when he gets uh, to the, the uh, victim, the Levite then passes on the other side. He may have justified this because the priest didn't do it, so I'm not going to do it myself. We are not told why these people passed on the other side, but somehow they were able to rationalize in their minds and they crossed over to the other side. Jesus very subtly illustrates something about the priest and the Levite. He shows that they, really, they are really no better than the thieves who beat and robbed the man and left him for dead. You can be a thief in one of two ways. You can take something from, that doesn't belong to you from someone, or you can keep something that belongs to someone else. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from those whom it is due when, you, when it is in your power to do it. Or, as is written in the book of James 4.17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The problem with both the priest and the Levite is not what they did. They didn't beat this man. They didn't rob this man. The problem is what they did not do. The priest and the Levite were bad neighbors because they refused to be good neighbors. 
For those in the crowd listening to this story, there is still hope, though. The priest has failed. The Levite has failed. But there are still a lot of great Jewish people out there. Surely Jesus is going to tell them the story of the good Jew who rescued the wounded man. But when they heard the next words out of Jesus' mouth, you could have heard a giant gasp all the way down to Egypt. But the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Today we talk about the Good Samaritan. 2,000 years ago, to the Jewish person, the only Good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. No class or race of people was more hated by the Jewish people than the Samaritans. Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogue. They were excluded from temple worship. It is a long story as to why this hatred grew, but let's suffice it to say it was all pure racism. Okay? Samaritans came about at the time of Sennacherib when the Jewish people were pulled away from their homes. And the Samaritans were the mixed blood between the armies of Sennacherib and the Jewish people. They were still followers of God. They still followed the Torah, but they were now excommunicated. Just imagine how this lawyer and his pharisaical buddies are feeling as they continue to listen to this galling story about a good Samaritan. He, the Samaritan, went to them and he bound up his wounds, he poured oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What this Samaritan does is nothing short of amazing. He uses his available resources, oil, wine, his own personal clothing, his animal, time, energy, his money, to give this wounded individual the best possible care. He then risks his own very life by taking the wounded man to an inn in the Jewish territory. You, you really could have not blamed the Samaritan if he had just dumped the guy at the edge of the town and rode away because, after all, the Jews hated the Samaritan so much that they probably would have held him responsible no matter what he said. That's just the way they felt about Samaritans. To top it off, the Samaritan gives the man, uh, gives the man enough money to cover all the, the innkeeper enough money to cover all his food and lodging for the next three weeks. That's what two denarii would cover. Then he promises to come back and pay anything else uh, that the man may owe. This is actually important because back in Jesus' day, if you could not pay your bills, you, he, he would have been, the injured man would have been sold as a slave by the innkeeper in order to get full payment of the debt. So by taking on the debt, the Samaritan, it kept that injured man from potentially ending up becoming a slave. It's interesting in the Bible, as you read it, 
there's all these little facts come. And one of the things I always encourage you is if you see something doesn't make sense, go and look it up in a commentary because it always makes sense. It's just the way the Bible is. It was at this point that Jesus turns the table on the lawyers that day when he looks at, at him and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell amongst the robbers? I can see the lawyer gagging as he answers his question. He can't even bring himself to call the guy a Samaritan. He simply says, the one who showed him mercy. To which Jesus calmly, but with a smile on his face, I would imagine, you go and do likewise. The tables had been totally turned. The lawyer had asked the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor? That assumes there are certain people who never will be your neighbor. The question is, am I a good neighbor? And if you want to go back to the side of the road at Jericho, you could phrase it, which side of the road are you on? The victim in our story today was unidentifiable. There was no way to identify the race of this person. There was no way to tell whether he was Jew or Gentile. The point Jesus made is it doesn't matter. You are a neighbor to all in need. Being a neighbor has nothing to do with your gender, your race, your white or your black. It's got nothing to do with your religious beliefs, Protestant, Catholic, Muslim or Hindu. It has nothing to do with whether you are rich or poor. It is all about not being greedy with people who are in need. What was it that set the Samaritan apart from the priest and the Levite? If you notice in verse 31, the priest saw, saw him and passed by. Verse 32, we are told the Levite saw him and passed by. Verse 33, we are told the Samaritan saw him and had compassion. Compassion. This is what made the Samaritan so special. The compassion in his heart. No law will ever make you into a good neighbor. But if you have real love, you can't help but being a good neighbor. Three men walked by the man that day. Two men saw a nuisance and one saw a need. The question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I a good neighbor? If you constantly ask, why should I get involved, brothers and sisters, you're heading to the wrong side of the road. The question a good neighbor asks is, how can I help? That is when you respond with your heart. Before I wind up this sermon, I want to make one last point. You know who the real Good Samaritan is in this story. It's Jesus. You see, there was a man who traveled the Jericho Road. He wasn't going away from Jerusalem. He was going towards Jerusalem. And he did it with a cross on his back. Just like the Samaritan, he came to all us sinners who the world and the devil has beaten and robbed and left for dead, and he gave us everything. 
He gave us everything he had, even when we could give him nothing back in return. Like a good neighbor, Jesus was there and is here today, providing us all what we need, compassion and love. This is the good news of the Bible. Though we are undeserving, we can look to Jesus in our time of need. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for not simply making us, but for giving us life, for the sheer joy of being alive, for the pleasure of real friendship, and for the opportunity to enjoy your wonderful creation. We praise you that you have made us, that we can find renewal and satisfaction and a sense of completeness, not only in the world around us, but also in the love which fills our lives. We thank you that not only for making us, but for making us your special people. You have done this not because we are worthy, but because we must bear a special responsibility. Thank you for giving us a world to care for, for other people whose needs are our opportunity to show your love and kindness for helping us to see even in the hard times and the times of difficulty as opportunities to rediscover your strength and your power. And now, Father, we bring before you our prayers for your people. Father, we pray for the whole church, which you called into being through your Son. We are aware that it was always your intention that your church should be a blessing to all people everywhere. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, your church may daily be renewed and empowered for the task that you gave it life. The Lord hears our prayer. We pray, Father, that we and all our other fellow Christians may be ready for any sacrifice, any action, any declaration that will clearly demonstrate faith, hope, and particularly love for our neighbors. For those who, as an act of discipleship, have, led, have felt led to live a life of involvement in feeding the hungry, seeking the lost, healing the broken, or enabling the defeated, the Lord hears our prayer. We pray for those who, because they know God has made them his special people, do all that they can to make others special too. For those who care for the sick and the dying, for those who care for others whose lives and emotions are in need of health and healing, the Lord hears our prayer. We pray for those who have suffered great grief, for those still overwhelmed by the separation death brings from someone they loved and who loved them. We ask that they may see the peace and the joy and love and the light of Christ in the lives of his people. The Lord, hear our prayer. And lastly, Lord, we pray for ourselves. In the face of all life's uncertainties, sorrows, hurts, disappointments, and failures, we ask that the assurance of Christ's presence, power, and love may give us strength to be good neighbors to all who are in need. The Lord, hear our prayer. In the name of Christ, 
who claims us as his special possession. Amen.